Welcome to the Discovery Pod, where we talk to leading experts from the University of Adelaide about solutions to society's most pressing challenges. As consumers, we rely on standardised guidelines, ratings and labels to make healthy food choices. But do they really have our best interests at heart? I'm joined today by Professor Wendy Umberger, who studies drivers of consumer and producer behaviour, and Dr James Mukey, ophthalmologist and public health advocate. James, you are an eye surgeon and also won Australian of the Year in 2020. Uh, can you describe to us what your key messaging was as Australian of the Year? Sure. Well, my role continues on actually into this year, but uh, it's uh, such a powerful platform that I thought I'd take on something really large because you have an opportunity to make change here. So I've taken on the challenge of type 2 diabetes, which is a growing epidemic. It's a man-made dietary disease and it uh, is really ravaging the people of Australia. So my main focus, my main messaging has been about awareness and accountability. So just looking at those two elements, uh, with awareness as an eye surgeon, I'm highly concerned that diabetes is the leading cause of blindness amongst working age adults. So it's a big, big problem. Uh, we have about 1.7 million people with diabetes in this country and well over half are not having their regular, all-important sight-saving eye checks. So I'm encouraging people to have their eye checks and I've been doing this through a number of mechanisms, through uh, social media, I've achieved a reach of over a million in the last year, I've given over 100 presentations, uh, I've been busy writing opinion pieces and, and so really actively getting out there. I've also uh, developed a number of documentaries uh, documentaries and TV commercials over the last few years, which Easy. I'm also pushing yeah. out there. So awareness of the blinding consequences of diabetes, but also awareness of the fact that type 2 diabetes, which makes up about 90% of cases, is largely preventable and also potentially reversible. So again, mm. through, uh, through the various mechanisms of social media, mainstream media, uh, my opinion pieces, uh, I've been really getting out there pushing the messaging here. I was also involved in the National Diabetes Strategy uh, Review last year and was able to persuade the Department of Health to actually include reversal or remission of type 2 diabetes in this document for the first time ever. So pretty wow. excited about that. And in terms of accountability, uh, a, number of, a number of elements there. Uh, I've actually written to a number of businesses and met with a number of industry leaders over the last years, encouraging them to curb their predatory sales and marketing tactics, which we see everywhere in our community. That's something I feel quite passionate about. Uh, I wrote to the Australian, what didn't have a lot of luck there actually. I um, fortunately, Australia Post has now removed sugary products from checkout counters in over 700 mm -hmm. of their corporate stores. Um, Adelaide University and the other two universities here in South Australia have now removed much of the junk food from their vending machines. So that was a bit of a win. Mm. Um, and uh, so I've also I've written to Australian Communications and Media Authority, again encouraging them to take ads off TV which are aimed at our children, ads for sugary products. Again, not much luck there. Uh, so you know, I've been really busy advocating and holding to account certain businesses and industry. One of the things that I was concerned about, and I'm uh, hoping to be involved in the review of the Australian Dietary Guidelines, is the serious layers of conflict of interest within mm. those guidelines. So I've been lobbying uh, the National Health and Medical Research Council to 
make sure that the next manifestation of those guidelines does not have those conflicts of interest, but they're not going to be released now for uh, until 2024. So we now have right. three years where we probably see 100,000 Australians being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes every year and probably 15,000 who will die from this disease. So we absolutely need a health awareness campaign to, to raise awareness of all of the elements related to this disease. Absolutely. We're going to get into the dietary guidelines and some of the health star ratings that we're all very familiar with as just regular Australians. Um, but for now, is is that what you're continuing with um, this year and for the years beyond? What does a, a week in the life of <laughs> Dr. James Mewkey look like? Well, these days, uh, I, I was just trying to decide whether I would continue on because it's quite a stressful space. Mm. And last year was not the year I was expecting it because of COVID, but mm. also because I took on this huge challenge and all of the various vested interests, which uh, really don't want to hear the sort of messages that I've been talking about. Uh, but I decided that uh, I really do want to continue with my advocacy work. And, and I've been doing that. I've continued to raise awareness. I have been actually now telling all of my patients with vision threatening eye disease to have a chat to their GPs mm. about the fact that they're type 2 diabetes can be put into remission. And we're now seeing some fantastic flow and effects of that with my patients, which is really exciting. Uh, I have now taken my messages to, to schools and particularly to parents and teachers to try and plant seeds of change in our youngest of mine. So that's mm. something I also feel passionate about. I met with the education minister here uh, recently, again, trying to reinforce the importance of education, which starts in childhood. So awareness I'm continuing on with, accountability I'm continuing on with, I mentioned being on the um, expert advisory group for the dietary guideline review. I'm hoping I'll hear any day now whether that will be uh, uh, and uh, whether that will happen. I'm continuing to write to businesses, uh, some of the chemists who have junk food at their checkout counters. That should so just not be So hypocritical, isn't it? It's bizarre. It's absolutely bizarre. Mm. And then the other, I call them my three A's, so awareness, accountability and assistance. So the third A is, is assistance. And so what we do need to see is assistance across a number of levels. So my son, who's in second year, oh sorry, third year medicine. Last year in second year medicine, he had the opportunity to do nutrition as an elective. So it's not mm. even compulsory. And yet this is the biggest driver of our poor health. Uh, so GPs, uh, nutritionists, dietitians, exercise physiologists need assistance to have the resources to be able to um, deliver these really important evidence-based messages to their patients. I truly believe patients with diabetes need to have access to the latest technology, so they need subsidised technologies such as continuous glucose monitoring so they can see the impact of their diet on their blood sugar levels. Uh, also, I think just assistance to our population, particularly in poorer areas of this country, uh, where um, they need subsidisation of real food, healthy food, I think mm. it's really important. And again, looking at, at teachers and parents to uh, give them the assistance to help uh, uh, um, to, to make them aware of the foods that are going to be the best for their children to thrive. Mm, that's such a good point because um, the practical accessibility of healthy foods is sometimes impossible for, for communities, especially remote communities, where an onion costs $4 mm, or something crazy. <clears throat> absolutely crazy like that. Um, Wendy, what does your work centre around? Yeah, so in a way it's kind of related to what James has just talked about. So... I'm a behavioral economist, which we I actually um, apply my methods to understanding consumer behavior um, when it comes to their choices around food and and you know how they end up with the diet 
um, that they end up with. So what drives those decisions? Everything from looking at their attitudes about food to um, knowledge about different aspects of food. So when you look at something like dietary guidelines, do they understand the dietary guidelines? What do they perceive the health star rating to mean? Um, what do they perceive different labels on food to mean? How does that actually match up to what those labels actually mean and what signals they're sending? So we take a really broad approach to looking at drivers of consumer behavior. For example, you know, would, would taxes on sugar help or not help? Um, do you need carrots or sticks? And then once we get that consumer information, we work with industry and government, oftentimes regulatory bodies, in terms of helping to design um, policies, um, policies for the whole of food system that would ultimately lead to better food purchasing decisions. So by better, that could mean healthier food mm -hmm. purchasing decisions. It could mean making sure that consumers aren't misled in terms of, for example, the certified organic, what do consumers understand about that? And it does it actually match up with, with what it actually is meant mm -hmm. to mean or, or, or you know, what, what does it mean? Um, and do consumers understand that? And then to sustainability, we're doing a lot of work right now on food waste and different environmental measures and what consumers understand, what they value. Do they really care about animal welfare or the different sustainability claims in the market? And why do they care? And then how ultimately um, do sustain, does sustainability attributes about food feed back into purchasing decisions? You know, most people are price constrained or budget constrained to some extent. And so then how can we shift behavior? Um, so we want to do it in a positive way, not in a way that necessarily a food company would take out and do to mislead or drive consumers to buy more of their product, but in a way that's overall good for society. Right. So does your data suggest that um, other means of communication, such as social media, change the way consumers behave? Yeah, for sure. And um, social media, you know, over time, so I've been doing this research now for about 25 years and in a number of countries, and it differs country to country, but living in Australia for about 15, and we've really seen that role of social media, um, the influence of that versus other players um, really become more important, um, influencing. And sometimes they don't even, consumers don't even realize what's influencing them. It takes a lot of probing and more qualitative research to kind of find out what's what's driving that behavior and underlying that behavior and, and kind of, you know, what what they think they know about different attributes of food. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, not every member of the general Australian public is a scientist or a dietitian, and they really rely on on those standardised health star ratings or the, the guidelines. Um, but obviously not all of uh, those, those guidelines or ratings, um, th there's a lot of issues with them as well. Um, James, what is the star health system? So the Health Star Rating System is a front-of-package labelling system that rates the nutritional profile of a packaged food, and then it assigns a rating to it, and that's a star rating, which goes from a half a star through to five stars. And it's based on a calculator, and the calculator has an algorithm which looks at the various uh, nutritional elements, and then based on that, we'll give the rating. And so um, there are certain nutritional elements that might lose points for that food, such as salt, saturated fat, sugar, and other products, or sorry, other nutritional elements that might uh, earn stars or earn points for that um, nutrient 
uh, that particular food, such as proteins and, and fruit and vegetables, also receive a high star rating. Mm. Are there any shortfalls in the system? There are lots of shortfalls in the system. <laughs> yeah, there are. So one of the one of the biggest shortfalls is that it's a voluntary system. So at the moment, about thirty percent of manufacturers are using it. So that means immediately it's flawed. But it's also flawed and it has shortfalls because of the industry element. This is a, um, a device that's being created in collaboration with the industry, and to me, that immediately puts a red flag on it. But if we look a little deeper at that statement, uh, the algorithm for the calculator was actually invented by one of the executives of Sanitarium, which is, as we know, an ultra-processed food company. So to me, this is really, really concerning. And uh, one wonders why Sanitarium products all receive very high ratings. And so uh, if you look at some of the, let's look at some of the other products, and a great comparison would be margarine versus butter. Now, butter is naturally is natural product. It's minimally processed. It has two ingredients, and yet it receives a half a star, which is quite extraordinary. And that's based on the fact that butter is composed of significant element of natural saturated fat. So the concern here to me is that natural saturated fats have never been linked to cardiovascular disease, and yet this is still implicit in this health star rating system. Now, if we look at the, the alternative, margarine, margarine is highly processed, uh, industrially made. It has, in many cases, over 20 different ingredients, and it has um, unhealthy fats within it, you know, the, the seed oils, uh, which uh, uh, omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids, which have been linked to cardiovascular disease, and yet margarine and other similar products often get four or more stars. So there's a real problem here, uh, I think we need to take a very close look at the health star rating system going forward, that this sort of bias and industry influence don't uh, continue to be a part of such an important thing. So I think the public really has to treat this with some suspicion. Absolutely, but I, I can um, imagine that most Australians probably trust a system that, that seems as though it's got the consumer's best interests at heart. Yes, yeah, got the industry's best interests at heart for yeah. sure. And, mm. and so, yes, I do suspect most people would trust it. Most people are unaware. But I think that the recent example of orange juice is a really good example. So orange juice up until earlier this year received five stars. And yet a glass of orange juice has almost as much sugar as a glass of cola, for example. And it's recently been downgraded to two stars. So right. uh, I think we're going to see more of this unfolding in the coming months, hopefully. Mm. And I guess that comes back to your accountability, mm -hmm. eh? Okay, so Wendy, from, from your point of view and from your research perspective, how do you believe uh, the general public perceives the health star rating system? Yeah, so from our research, um, what we've found is that consumers are aware of it. So, you know, if you put that alongside a lot other um, labeling attributes that you might see on a package of food, they'll say, yep, we see it. But then if you ask them, what does it mean? Um, it's kind of all over the place. And yes, people will say about 70% of those who have seen it, then, you know, attach it correctly with it's more healthy, but it also can be said to be more sustainable, safer, all of these other things. So there's this halo effect with it, like there are with a lot of other claims that are being made on packages. So they don't know how to use them. If you probe more deeply, then we've we've asked a bit about it in qualitative research when we were doing eye tracking work and consumers 
they'll say, oh, I really don't know what it means. I, I know that four stars is, is better than two stars, mm -hmm. but in terms of what aspects of the food, I don't really know what it is. It's just better. Mm -hmm. And so I'll pick a four star over a two star, but I don't know why I do that. You know, it, it's a lot of that that you hear back from consumers. So I think that they're, they don't really understand what it means. So I'm not sure it's, it's being used appropriately. Um, and I'm not sure it's always sending the, the proper signals, although I think it's probably getting better over time. Okay, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the dietary guidelines. James, what are the dietary guidelines in Australia? So the Australian dietary guidelines are a 226-page document that tells us uh, what type of food and how much we should eat to achieve our optimal health. Now, the guidelines state that themselves are intended for the average healthy Australian. But if you actually realise that the majority of Australians are not healthy, over two-thirds of Australian adults are overweight or obese, and over a quarter of Australian kids are of, uh, overweight or obese, then obviously these dietary guidelines are not appropriate for the majority of, of Australians. And yet the guidelines are really powerful. They actually inform what's eaten at childcare, at schools, aged care facilities, in our prisons, the Defence Force, hospitals, you name it. They also inform our army of health providers, health educators, health policy makers and the food industry. So they are very, very powerful. Okay, so how were the dietary guidelines actually developed? So the dietary guidelines were developed by the National Health and Medical Research Council, which oversee the process. And back in 2007, I believe, there was a tender process and that was won by the Dietitians Association of Australia, now Dietitians Australia. Uh, and they were given the task of actually doing the literature review mm -hmm. for the references, which then inform what's in the guidelines, what, how, how we're advised to, to eat. So to me, this is uh, a concerning document. One, because the last edition was released in 2013, so we're now sort of eight, eight years or so since, uh, since that document was released. But it's also flawed and it's also biased. And what I mean by that, it's flawed because it's based on epidemiological evidence and epidemiological evidence is weak, often unreliable. And so our dietary guidelines and our nutritional policy is based on weak, flawed evidence. So that, that really concerns me. The other thing that concerns me, there are multiple layers of bias within the dietary guidelines and just a couple of examples of that. So the Dietitians Association of Australia, who did the literature research uh, at the time, they were awarded the tender, they were conflicted by the ultra-processed food industry and yet they still received the tender. They should not have received the tender whatsoever. So one is really concerned that, that the industry already has a footprint within these dietary guidelines. Another example, if you actually look at uh, some of the references, in fact, many references are industry-funded studies. We know that when industry funds a study, it's nearly eight times more likely to show a result that's favourable to that industry. And if we look at the enjoy grain section of the dietary guidelines, it's been estimated that the majority of the references in that section alone have been funded by industry. So to me, again, lots of red flags in this document. Absolutely. Wendy, how do, how do consumers perceive the dietary guidelines? Obviously, it's not only a document for consumers, it's also a document for doctors and to inform hospitals and workplaces and childcare. So it's a very influential document. But how does the general consumer uh, use that? Um, 
utter confusion and they, in most cases, don't use it correctly. And even people, I think, that are relatively knowledgeable in terms of nutrition and science get still really confused because we know in our diets you need to take a holistic approach and and you know how how do you use that information what does so many grams of fat mean and how do you put that in the context so massive confusion um, again probably something that's improving over time but um, most consumers when you sit down to talk to them about it they'll admit that they really don't understand how to use it. Mm -hmm. And do these dietary guidelines have anything to do with that famous triangle with the carbs at the bottom and the um, sweets at the top? Is that is that part of the dietary guidelines? So the, the food pyramid. Yeah. yeah. So the food pyramid is... Uh, the dietary guidelines inform a number of things. Uh, we have an Australian Guide to Healthy Eating and we also have a, a food pyramid. But if you look more deeply at the recommendations of the dietary guidelines. In essence, it's uh, recommending a high-carb dietary approach. Okay. So, and if we look at type 2 diabetes, which is the, the disease, the devastating, life-changing, sight-threatening disease that is afflicting so many Australians, uh, this is a disease of carbohydrate intolerance, and yet the dietary guidelines are telling us to eat lots of carbs. Even mm. Our College of General Practitioners are recommending people with diabetes eat by the dietary guidelines. Di diabetes Australia is recommending people, people eat by the dietary guidelines. So this, this to me is, is concerning. So this high-carb, low-fat eating pattern, uh, which is the overarching, and that's, that is also displayed in the, in the food pyramid and mm. the guide to healthy eating. But if we also look at some other elements to this, so it, it discourages, discourages the eating of saturated fats, including natural saturated fats. And yet, as I mentioned before, natural saturated fats have not been linked to cardiovascular disease. So natural saturated fats that we find in full fat dairy, in unprocessed red meat, uh, in eggs, even in dark chocolate, really important information. And this discouraging of the eating of natural saturated fat has led to a boom in the production of low-fat low products, quite literally thousands over the last uh, uh, few decades. What it also does is encourage the eating of polyunsaturated fats, such as found in the vegetable oils, they're actually not made from vegetables, they're actually made from seeds, so I call them the seed oils, but also in margarines. And these polyunsaturated fats, omega-6 fats, have been linked to cardiovascular disease. So we've been told to uh, limit our intake of healthy fats and increase our intake of unhealthy fats. And, and this is very concerning to me. It also encourages the eating of cereals and grains, and yet refined cereals and grains have been linked once again to type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So I think the whole recommendation within the dietary guidelines needs to be flipped on its head. Mm. The food pyramid needs to be flipped on its, on its head. It does, yeah. Wendy, there are a couple of um, other really well-recognised stamps, such as organic uh, and non-GM, non-genetically modified. Um, how does the public um, consider the organic stamp and, and does that actually equate to healthy? Yeah, that's such an interesting question because this is, this is a topic I love. Because if you sit at dinner parties and talk to people um, in day-to-day -day life, everyone, there's always somebody that's obsessed with organic and will only buy organic food. And then if you dig deeper, they actually don't understand. And that's what our research shows time and again. 
Um, so I might just say organic, actually, if, it, if you buy certified organic and if you're interested in organic in Australia, you really want to look for um, that certified organic logo. If it's not certified, it could really mean very little. Um, the ACCC in Australia would check, um, but, you know, the probability of it getting someone getting caught for mislabeling is relatively low. Um, so some there's, there's foods on the market that are called organic. And what that organic claim means versus what a certified organic claim means can be quite different. So if we talk about certified organic, certified organic has an underlying production system. So a farmer, for example, has to, for three years, not have used any synthetic chemicals on their land. So no synthetic or man-made pesticides or herbicides or fertilizers. Um, they can't use GM crops, so no GM seeds, um, genetically modified seeds. They have to treat their waste differently. Um, and if they're um, producing livestock, they have to feed their livestock um, organic feed. So it actually can cost producers quite a significant amount more than a conventional, conventional producer. They have to get certified. Someone can randomly show up on their property and inspect them. And so it's quite a stringent third party, what we call a third party independent certification system. It means something. Now, the problem in Australia versus other countries like Europe and the United States is that in Australia, that um, standard, that certification, the standard for Australia organic, certified Australian organic, um, which is overseen by our federal government, that was set in 1992. Um, so that, that's good we have a standard. But what's different from Australia versus other countries is that it's a voluntary standard. And what that means is that um, in Australia, you can sell something as organic you can sell something as certified organic, and to sell it as certified, you have to use a third-party auditor. But you don't have to certify organic. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, if you talk to consumers, consumers, most of them, don't understand that there's a difference between organic and certified organic. So an organic product may not have gone through that um, rigid system or that very... Um, you know, that, that certification and had that period of time where the land doesn't use, it, it might not involve this, this different production system. And so that concerns me that here it's voluntary. And I know from our own research that consumers are misled by the fact because, you know, there's, there's a voluntary standard and you can have both organic and certified organic. They don't understand the difference. So, um, I think that's going to change in the next couple of years where the organic industry is really pushing to get this to be that there's, there's, one, um, there's one certification that you can use in the domestic market instead of different ones and that to call something organic that you have to um, have gone through this third party certification system. I think that's really good because it doesn't lead to this, this misleading, um, I guess, misleading consumers that's happening now. But the other thing about organic that really concerns me is that if we, when we talk to consumers, whether we do it quantitatively through big surveys, um, trying to find out what they think organic means, or whether we sit down and talk qualita qualitatively with consumers, consumers have no clue, most of them, what organic means. So they perceive it to be healthier. You asked, you know, is it healthier? Well, there's actually not, there's been big meta-analysis done around the world to look at is organic healthier. 
And basically what the meta-analyses say is there's not overwhelming evidence. So um, whether it's diet, you know, the diet re research or the health research or even um, looking at it from the production side and the egg science literature, there's nothing that can conclusively say that it's overall healthier. Yep. There's some studies to say, for example, there's a milk study that says um, that's in a British nutrition journal that says um, organic milk can be higher in certain um, certain nutrients and can be better in certain good fats. But again, that's a British, you know, looking at the British study, and it really depends upon the production system. So is it healthier? No, there's inconclusive evidence to say that it's healthier. The other thing consumers think um, is that it's safer. And there's actually been globally, um, many of this food safety outbreaks have been tied to um, connected with organic um, food production systems, just because, you know, you're using, um, you're using, I guess, fertilizers and inputs that might have um, foodborne issues such as E. coli associated with them. Not saying that organic's going to be less safe, but is it more safe? No, there's not evidence to show that. Um, the other thing that consumers who buy organic, like an attribute that they think it offers to them is that it's more environmentally friendly, so better for the environment, better for animals. And again, the research doesn't show conclusive evidence either because it depends upon the product, the organic production system, um, what country you're looking at, what the general, the general um, agricultural conditions are in there. Now, you know, certified organic products in Australia would be um, doing land management practices to improve the quality of the soil and get it back to, you know, higher in it, basically a better quality soil, but it's not guaranteed. So um, I guess when we look at Australian consumers, we every two years we do this study to look at the different, um, what consumers think these different food claims mean. And with certified organic, it's actually um, consistently about 30% of consumers strongly believe that it's safer, healthier, um, and about 25% of those believe it's better for the environment. But the interesting thing that's going up is the cynicism. So we ask, a we have an option there that says it's meaningless, it means nothing, it's a marketing gimmick. And the percentage of the people that are marking that over time is actually going up because people are learning, um, you know, that actually there's issues with it. So yeah, organic's a really interesting one. Absolutely. So what about the non-genetically modified stamp? Uh, what, what is it and how do customers perceive it? Yeah, so non-GMO, um, that stamp, it's usually on the back of the pa package most of the time. Um, most people in Australia, our research would show, don't even, they're not even aware of GM because, yeah, it hasn't probably been on the radar very much in Australia relative to, you know, if you, if you talk to consumers in the United States or Europe, for example, they know all about GM and increasingly they're against it. But here, consumers don't even, they don't even seem to, to be too aware of it. But what the stamp means is that it actually means that that food product should not have um, ingredients that came from, um, for example, a genetically modified crop. So if you're looking at a packet of corn chips, for example, um, and it has that stamp, it would mean mostly that the products that were used to produce that corn chip 
grains mostly, um, should not be GM. They should not be from plants that were genetically modified. There is a small percentage that's allowed. So that's really where consumers need to get on. Um, if you get on Food Standards Australia New Zealand, you can read because there is a limit in terms of, of what percentage of GM ingredients, but the main ingredients couldn't be from a GM crop. Right. Is a genetically modified food actually uh, less healthy for us? No, in fact, actually genetically modified, some genetically modified food products have been engineered so that they're more healthy, so that they're better in higher in certain vitamins, higher in certain um, amounts of good fats, for example, depending upon the crop, they can be better for the environment. So there's a lot of science work going on to try to design drought um, tolerant crops. Um, to address climate change issues, to um, biofortify, um, to make crops that are higher in vitamins and to grow them in areas um, such as Southeast Asia, where they're really low in certain micronutrients. Vitamin A was a big one that's been, there's been GM crops um, engineered to improve the vitamin A content. So they can actually be healthier and they can actually be more sustainable for, for us as a society. So why are people so um, so cynical about them? Yeah, I think um, I think it's the fear of the unknown that they don't understand the science of it, um, or the fear that um, you know there was there was the thing in the '90s, Frankenfood, where um, you know the image I have is this carrot um, that was used in the media in the United States a lot, where it's a Frankenstein-looking carrot that it had been engineered, and that. I think people, because they don't understand that it's safe or that they don't trust the, the people selling the food to them and think, oh, you're just doing this because it means lower cost, that they think, you know, they, they don't trust it basically. And they're worried it might cause um, long-term health effects. And in fact, the science um, and, and the regulation that goes through um, getting a GM a GM product approved so that a farmer can grow it um, is probably more than um, there's there's been more time and more approval and more regulatory processes than um, what the Pfizer vaccine went through, I would say, you know, and and so I think by the time it gets to us as consumers, it's pretty safe to eat. Um, that's not to say that there's not issues with it, and there has been some issues in the past, and I think that's where some of the fear comes from, just that they don't know, they don't understand the science. And science isn't always good at communicating to consumers either. Absolutely. So it sounds like science has a big responsibility to communicate factual information, and also consumers have a responsibility to seek that information out if they do want to be healthy. Yeah. As scientists, I think, um, and researchers, we need to get much better at understanding how to communicate with consumers and not just say, trust me. You know, mm. um, I guess I'm a social science scientist, but we, when we work a lot with um, the scientists doing developing the technology for GM foods, um, you know, I think oftentimes there's this this arrogance to say, well, it's gone through this approval process. There's regulation, and and consumers should just trust. But as a consumer, you know, well, why should we trust? Mm. You know, we and and is it up to us as consumers to go out and get educated, or is it is it kind of a, a team effort where we need to communicate better with one mm, another. Absolutely. And thank you, both of you, so much for being um, that voice um, between science and consumers, the general public. Um, and thank you very much for your time on The Discovery Pod today. Thanks for listening to The Discovery Pod, brought to you by the University of Adelaide.
Join us next time when we discuss sustainable mining.